Today is a big day because today is a day on which we make some decisions that are going to affect our church for years into the future uh, in terms of possibility of hiring Stephen Boyer as our new youth pastor and the possibility of adding Tony Malik as our worship leader. And therefore, uh, we need every single member in this room to stay for the meeting. I've been conducting kind of an informal count. In order to have a quorum for this meeting, we need every single one of you to be here. Okay? So I know that it's a, a family weekend. I know that you have plans. Be here anyway. Not a joke. <laughs> okay. We need to be able to conduct this, uh, and we need to be able to do the Lord's business with reference to our church. And, uh, and so seriously, be here anyway. Um, Eric grabbed me just before uh, the service started to remind me that uh, there are many people this weekend who are remembering the fallen and one of his brothers was uh, his brothers in arms was with him in Somalia and went down in Black Hawk Down uh, back in those days in 1993 and that family still grieves you know it's not everybody who has a movie made about their dad but uh, but that man did and uh, it's a hard weekend for some other people, even as we, uh, even as the rest of us eat uh, bratwurst and uh, uh, try and stay warm uh, this weekend. Uh, it's a hard weekend for a lot of other folks, and so I want to pray for them, and um, and specifically for Eric. And Eric, remind me uh, of the, of the family's name. It's is it Kowalski, Kovaleski. I'm sorry, I'm no good with Polish. Uh, I barely do English, all right? <laughs> so uh, Kovaleski, the Kovaleski family, and uh, let's we pray for them and for, for those uh, others who have lost folks. Uh, God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that by your great grace, we live in a country where, at least to this point, for many hundreds of years, we have had freedom to declare the gospel openly and without any fear. And Father, we know that's a unique privilege in human history, and we do not take it lightly. And we know that it is due not only to your grace, but also by the sacrifices made on behalf of its continuation uh, by men like Mr. Kovaleski and by men like Eric and by other men and women who have served in uniform and put on um, put on the risk of going into battle for the principles that, that we hold dear. And Father, we thank you for these men and women. And we, we thank you for their families. Many of them have, have, have watched as their sons and daughters gave the last full measure, and they still grieve. So Father, I pray that you would be very near to the Kovaleskis and to Eric here this weekend as we remember the fallen and are grateful for the freedoms that you enjoy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
this past week, uh, if you tried to find me, I was not here. Uh, I was up instead at the Moody Pastors Conference up at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, probably the best conference I've ever been to in terms of uh, what God did in me while I was there. Uh, the theme was refocus, and the goal of the speakers was to encourage pastors to remember their calling and why they got into the ministry in the first place. Uh, there's not a lot of new information that we went over. In fact, two different speakers spoke on 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, uh, which was interesting. Uh, they didn't talk to one another before they got up to speak, and one guy got done, and they're like, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. We were like, we were just there. Interesting. But... Um, over and over again, there was the constant exhortation to remember, and it's a biblical exhortation. If you look through the prophets as you read your Bible, what you see is that the prophets are always calling Israel back to remember their covenant with the Lord and remember what they have been taught and remember uh, that God is the God who took them through the ocean and took them uh, through the desert and fed them there and took them across the Jordan and conquered the land on their behalf and gave them the king and the covenant and the prophets and the patriarchs and all of these things. And the accusation within the prophets is that they forgot. And sometimes we forget, don't we? Even I forget. Uh, God's faithful love to me. And this week was a renewing week and a joyous week, and I appreciate you all making it uh, available to me the opportunity to go and be encouraged uh, in that way with my, with my brothers in arms uh, who were in the past here. Uh, the year was 1988. The location was Seoul, South Korea. The date was September 24th, a warm Saturday night that, per that was perfect for the event to be run, which was the men's 100-meter Olympic finals. And I was 15 years old at the time, and I was watching it unfold on one of the four TV networks that we got at my house at the time that came in through the rabbit ears. Dates me some, I know. Uh, as is typical for Olympic coverage, there was a lead-in story talking about the rivalry between the legendary Carl Lewis and a relative newcomer, a Canadian named Ben Johnson. And he and Lewis had been trading victories back and forth for the previous three years. Lewis had lost the previous five races, two, five of the races, in, uh, including the 1987 World Championship to Johnson. And then in 1988, Carl had a string of victories. He won in Paris in June and Zurich in, on August the 17th, and he confidently predicted as they went into the blocks, the gold medal for the 100 meters is mine, and I will never lose to Johnson. Well, those of you who are either interested in track and field or old enough to remember, remember what happened. They got down into the blocks. It was a legendary field with many world record holders former world record holders down in the blocks, and the gun went off, and Ben Johnson came out of the blocks with fire in his eyes, and he set a new 
world record, 9.79, still the fifth fastest time ever. And he would have run faster, he said, had I not slowed down at the end. You may remember he pumped his fist about 10 yards before he got across the line because he was so far ahead of everybody, including Carl Lewis. And it was an unbelievable victory. It was unimaginable how fast he went. And I can still see the mental picture of that race and that finish. And the Canadian Prime Minister, you know, there's not a lot of Olympic glory for Canada. Not a lot of glory generally in Canada. But anyway, they try to take what they can get. And the Canadian Prime Minister called. He was Brian Mulroney called and congratulated Johnson and, 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 and celebrated with him over the phone. Newspapers covered the occasion uh, by concocting words like benfastic to describe it. But the story, in just a matter of hours, began to unravel. And the feel-good story turned to dust when it was revealed within days that Ben Johnson had been using stenolazole, a banned anabolic steroid, and he was stripped of his gold medal and the world record and also his world championship gold from 1987. And the moral of the story is, in a race, all runners run, but not all get the prize. Run in such a way that you might win. That's what we looked at last week. Uh, you may be thinking, in fact, Pastor, that was last week's message, and you're right, it was, and we are not going backwards. But I want you to remember the moral of that story a little as we're looking at today, because what we're looking at today is further explanation of what it means to run in such a way that you might win and to not be disqualified, as Paul says, from running the race. Uh, you know, a lot of times I think this is the danger that we run as we look at the scriptures the way that we do. I, uh, I believe very strongly in the idea that the mind will only take in that which the rear will endure, right? And so we just take little chunks each week uh, of the scriptures, and what we, what the risk in that is that as we as we study the scriptures that way, where we're just looking at this little chunk and this little chunk and this little chunk, is giving the impression that the scriptures are just this disjointed thing. Or there's just you know there's a little instruction here, a little instruction here, a little instruction here, a little instruction here, rather than something which flows together and is connected into a whole, and that. They're unfolding and explaining a larger concept and a larger argument along with giving moral instruction and, and spiritual uh, life information and uh, telling us how to worship God. They're all doing that, but they're also part of a larger narrative, a larger story, a larger uh, set of instructions that's being given. And so I want you to make sure you see the connection between what we saw last week and what we see this week. Uh, and if you look at the letter of 1 Corinthians as a whole, remember that the theme is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, 
For I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul is preaching the gospel and showing throughout his entire letter how the gospel relates to life in every one of its aspects. And if we believe, in other words, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was crucified for our sins and raised for our redemption, then that belief necessarily changes our lives. Amen? It necessarily does. So I want to look at the text with you and see what God wants to tell us through his apostolic word to us. So if you've got 1 Corinthians open, look at chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes these words, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, Paul is referring the, the Corinthians back to the nation of Israel and to their history. And notice how he does so. These people, he says, are our fathers. This is interesting. Most of the people to whom he is writing are not Jewish. They are Gentiles. Paul is Jewish. But nevertheless, Paul says they are our fathers. Because if you believe in Jesus then you believe that he is the fulfillment of promises made to Israel. And therefore, in a sense, you enter into and are grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And so you have also possession of the patriarchs and the Exodus generation as our fathers too, even though they are not our fathers genetically. They are our fathers spiritually. They're ours by faith. And look at what they experienced. Paul says that they all had the glory cloud that led them by day, and they all crossed the Red Sea. And that by analogy, these two experiences, um, they're, you know, they're watery experience. Uh, they're experiences of God's presence, and there are, by analogy, like Christian baptism. And the exodus, and especially the Red Sea crossing, is the point at which the slaves become free men. They get over to the other side, and God fed them with, with manna, miraculous food, every day. And he, fed, and he gave them water uh, from a rock. And Paul says these are spiritual food and drink. And he says they're analogous to our practice of communion, which is spiritual food and drink, by which we experience God's presence. Amen? Most of us have, um, have an understanding, I would hope, that, that when we take communion, we are remembering the sacrifice of Christ, but that not that Christ is present in the food, but that he is present with us by the Spirit within us as we celebrate communion together. Amen? And Paul says that they had experiences, spiritual experiences. They saw God's deliverance. They went through the Red Sea and they had the glory cloud, which is analogous to baptism. They ate spiritual food and, and drank spiritual drink, which is analogous to communion. They had spiritual experiences, right? And in addition to that, 
The rock, Paul says, was Christ. The rock they drank water from, it was Christ who was offering them life and keeping them physically alive, but also spiritually imparting life to them. It was a visible symbol of God's ongoing, continuing grace to them as they continually had water and they continually had food. Uh, Just as when we take communion, it's a symbol of God's ongoing presence with us and of fellowship with God when it's most needed. And so what Paul is saying is all the community of Israel had all these spiritual experiences of the reality of Christ and the fellowship with Christ, and they were literally fed and drank by God's hand. They were physically redeemed and delivered from slavery. And the same things happened to us in a spiritual way, but and they happened to them in a visible way, yet many of them, despite having these spiritual experiences, nevertheless did not believe. They had spiritual experiences. They did not have spiritual life in some cases. In fact, Paul says, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the desert. The vast, vast majority of the Exodus generation never got into the promised land. Why? Because spiritual activity is not equal to spiritual life. Many of them had wonderful spiritual experiences, and some of them even possessed saving faith, I believe. Because after all, Moses didn't get into the promised land either. He died in the desert also. And you can certainly uh, make a good case that Moses really and truly knew the Lord. Amen? But nevertheless, there were a large number of people who had all the same experiences who, who were not alive from a spiritual perspective. And Paul, uh, Paul's going to give us examples of, of how we know that. But they all had all the same stuff happen. They all had the glory cloud. They all had the Red Sea crossing. They all had the daily manna. They all had the water from the rock. And yet when, pr- when push came to shove, What many of them wanted to do was organize a a tour group to go back to Egypt and move there. Because far better to be in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh than to follow this fellow Moses around in in the desert, even if there is a glory cloud and we know God is with us. They wanted to go back to their former way of life. Now, how would that have any applicability to the Corinthians? Because some of them, in their participation in these idol feasts, are indicating a desire to go back to their former way of life. And here's the thing. They wanted to have any priest but Aaron, any leader except Moses, any law but the one God actually gave. They wanted to have a God they could see and worship on their own terms rather than the true God who said, you shall have no other gods except me. And for these reasons, God judged them, and he put them to death in the desert. And 
he waited until there was a next generation that would rise up and serve him wholeheartedly. And Paul is writing this way, I think, because he fears that when push comes to shove, some of the Corinthians may be like the ancient Israelites. They're simply along for the ride, but they lack any genuine spiritual life. And he is perhaps warning us also. Because it is possible in the United States of America to grow up in this country and to hear the gospel and to enjoy Christian music and to enjoy bookstores that sell Christian stuff and shop at CBD and take communion and even be baptized in this church by this pastor and serve in ministry in this place and still be spiritually dead. Possible. Paul wants to warn us as he's warning them to not confuse spiritual activity, having spiritual experiences with possessing a spiritual life. They are not the same. Doing these things does not guarantee you redemption any more than going into your garage makes you the car. It doesn't. Spiritual activity does not equal spiritual life. This whole passage is a warning that when our desires do not align with those given by the Spirit, we have to examine ourselves to ensure that the Spirit is actually present within us. We've got to be careful here. It matters. Because uh, that, that's my first point. The second one is this, that God is faithful both to judge and to give mercy. I want you to look here at the text, verses 6 to 13. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolatrous as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation you also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, Paul, in that passage, identifies four things for which God judged the Exodus generation. If you look at it, the first one is desiring evil, which Paul connects to the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. He says there was eating and there was drinking and then there was pagan revelry. Now, again, look at the context of 1 Corinthians. What's Paul been writing about? Eating and drinking connected with paganism, connected with idolatry. And he says, these people back here in Exodus, that's not just a historical incident. We serve the same God they did. And God put people to death over going back into idolatry when they had been redeemed. God is faithful to judge 
those who are desiring evil. It says also sexual immorality is something for which God judges. That's an incident that's referred to in Numbers chapter 22, verse 25, in that whole story of Balaam. And Balaam goes out to curse. He's hired by the Moabites and the Midianites to curse the people of Israel. And he's unable to do so. And there's this comical scene where he gets confronted by his own donkey. And God tells him, you've got to say what I say or I'm putting you to death. And Balaam agrees. He's going to say what the Lord says. And so, but the Moabite king takes him around to various places thinking that God's power and presence will be confined to geography. And wherever Balaam stands, out of his mouth comes blessing for Israel. And, and the, the Moabite king is understandably disappointed because he has laid out considerable cash for a curse. And he says, what's the deal, man? And he says, well, I can't effect a curse on them god will not allow me to speak anything but blessing on these people he says although i have a good idea if you want them to be cursed you'll have to get their own god to curse them so here's what you do get some of your girls moabite women midianite women who are morally flexible and send them out to among the Israelite men and invite them to a festival. And as you're worshiping the pagan deity, seduce the men into the worship. Engage in sexual immorality with them, and then God will judge them. And so that's what they did. And God sent a plague among the people and killed 23,000 of them in one day and the plague was only stopped by Phineas the priest who saw a, a Simeonite named Cosby go into his tent with a Midianite woman in front of all of the congregation of Israel he's going boldly in to commit immorality Simeon I mean Phineas rather grabs a spear follows Cosby into his tent and as he is engaged in immorality with this woman kills both of them wham and God put a stop to the plague but God is serious about immorality. And immorality is intimately connected with pagan worship and idolatry. In the city of, in the city of Corinth, remember, you've got the cult of Aphrodite, the love goddess, who is big. And immorality is not a, an accident. It's a feature of that. They have temple prostitutes with whom you can go and have sex, either male or female prostitutes and it's not immorality it's worship at least according to the aphrodite cult and some of these corinthians are going to places like this and eating with pagans food that has been sacrificed to this goddess or that god or whoever and paul is saying hey the road you're on leads directly to sexual immorality and you need to understand that god is serious about it if he put 23,000 of the Israelites to death over it, and they are his covenant people, in other words, do not think that God is not equally serious with us. It's so widely accepted in our culture that this has become the norm. That even Christians would not get married as virgins 
And yet, that's not what the Scripture says. Scripture says, do not engage in sexual immorality as some did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. The same Lord serves. We must not put Christ to the test. This is number three, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Here's what happened. This is what they said. This is Numbers chapter 21. They said against the Lord about his provision of manna and their thirst for water. Why have you brought us? This is what they said to God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For they're here there's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Talking about the manna that God provided every morning. And so God sent among them snakes to bite them. And you may remember uh, that many of them died and he instructed Moses to make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who looked at that bronze serpent on the pole was delivered from the snake. And Jesus then tied himself to that and said, those who look to me, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up and bring salvation to those who look to him. But he says, do not, do not test the Lord. Do not think that it's okay to, to dabble in the paganism of the culture as they did. Put him to the test as they did. Uh, and then the last thing he says that they, the last thing, and this may not seem like a big deal, but it ought to. He says, says do not grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, grumbling is not a reference to a specific incident. It's more of a characterization of the entire wilderness experience. Because virtually from the word go, as soon as they got out of Egypt, they were longing to go back and complaining the entire time. And God referred to them as a stiff-necked people. And, and he put every, virtually every member of that Exodus generation to death in the desert. He said, I can't go into the promised land with these people because they do not trust me. They will not follow me, and they will not believe in the deliverance that I am going to grant. You know, it's about an 11-day walk from where they were in Egypt up to the promised land. You don't need to spend 40 years getting there. But God had to wait until that entire generation died except for Caleb and Joshua in order to go into the land because everybody else was not ready. Though they had got out of Egypt physically, they, they had not got the Egypt out of themselves spiritually. And they longed to go back there. And so God and so Paul says that they were destroyed by the destroyer. Incidentally, do you remember uh, on the, the last of the plagues, you remember what that one was, anybody? What was the last plague? The death of the firstborn. Do you remember how it said the destroyer will come through. And anybody who doesn't have blood on the door and on the lintels of the, of the door will 
be destroyed by the destroyer. Look what happened. The same people who were delivered by the destroying angel out of Egypt through the death of the firstborn are now being put to death by it for their refusal to abandon Egypt for help. And then God, and then Paul says that God is also faithful to show mercy. He says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, don't think that you're doing okay just because you haven't fallen into any of this yet. Then he says, look, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I love that. In other words, you're not experiencing something which is unusual. Whenever you confront people over their sin, they always want to give you all the reasons why they are a unique case. Right? Well, you got to understand my situation. And here's my situation, and here are all the extenuating circumstances and mitigating ideas as to why this would be okay for me to be indulged in what I'm doing. Paul says, nothing has happened to you, temptation-wise, that is out of the ordinary. Everybody experiences this kind of stuff. And then he says, and this is where the grace note comes in, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful not just to judge, but to help. And do we need help? Amen, we need help. I need help. When I am tempted, the thing I have to be able to do is to do like Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in time of need. Because everything within me from a sinful perspective wants to go that way. But I can come to God and know He will give mercy, that He will enable me to withstand not just the temptation, but in this case, the consequences that fall on me, if I'm a Corinthian, for my rejection of all this stuff. It says that you'll be able to endure under it. By the way, this is one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible. How many of you have heard somebody say, raise your hand. How many of you have ever heard someone say, well, God won't give you what you can't handle. Okay? They, they rip this verse out of context, forget that it's talking about temptation, and think it applies to all circumstances, and they go, well, God won't give you what you can't handle. No, that's not what this says. In fact, that's very nearly the opposite of what this says. It says, when you encounter a situation which you're completely unable to handle, then God will, will come in and help you. That he knows that every time that sin comes up as a temptation, that we want to go that way. But when we go the Lord and say help then he provides the way of escape it is not that God never puts us in a situation that is beyond us in fact he does that regularly but he wants us to come to him for help and see that he is steadfast and faithful and loves us even in the midst of those circumstances amen God is faithful not just to judge also to bless and to help and to love 
and to give grace when we really, really, really need it, which is always. He'll make a way for us to endure in spite of them. So, you know, for, for the Corinthians, God will provide strength to endure the social ostracism and the ridicule and even the persecution that might come as a result of the rejection of all this stuff. Paul knows, as we ought to know, that if you stand for Christ, you may well offend people, but if you don't, you will be offensive to God. And he is encouraging them to choose wisely which they'd rather do. Let's continue. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So here is the conclusion of three chapters dealing with this issue, what it's all led up to, that being a Christian means separating yourself by the Spirit's power from everything which is sinful and evil. And to take communion, Paul says here in this section, is to experience the real presence of Christ as you take the bread and the wine. No matter how many Christians may be spread around the world, all of us partake of the same bread and the same wine because Christ's body and his blood are one and we are one, therefore, in him. So as we celebrate, we experience in the death of Christ for our sins and and his redemption that comes through his the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And we experience God's grace as we eat and as we drink. Understand? You with me so far? I hope so. On the other side of this, if you participate in a feast in an idol's temple, to eat and you eat and drink with demons. One table fellowship necessarily precludes fellowship in the other. And to, and to participate in sin and evil is to provoke the Lord to jealousy as the people of Israel did and to, exp- and to invite God's judgment for unfaithfulness and compromise with idolatry. Now, there's probably not a long list of places to which you are being invited where they actually have a physical idol. I have actually been to a few. Uh, Karen and I, as, as part of a assignment for a seminary class, had to go to a non-Christian worship experience and write a report on that. Karen didn't have to go. I have to go. She has to experience all the negatives of life right along with me. We're one, right? <laughs> and we went to this uh, temple, Baha'i Temple, and... And we are sitting in there, and there's this curtain. 
and we hear chanting, and we hear the bells and so forth, and they pull back the curtain, and as God is my witness, I leaned over, and I said to Karen, behold, the great Oz. Okay, uh, but anyway, they pull back the curtain, and they got this little idol in there, and they dress him up every day, and they offer sacrifices to him, and they serve food out of this restaurant. This is down in Dallas. And they get down on their knees, and they bow down to this little statue, this little ugly little thing of Krishna. And they offered us food that had been sacrificed to the idol. Um, now, you're probably not going to have that kind of experience. And I would not encourage you to do that, by the way. I did it once. I have not done it again. Once is entirely enough. In fact, it's probably too many. But here's the deal. We have in our culture all kinds of pressure to conform and to be pushed into the mold of being like everybody else. And many of the results of idolatry are the same as what we see all around us. So we see people pursuing all kinds of things as if they were supreme other than God. We see some people who devote their lives to sexual immorality. We see people who devote their lives to money. Now, we don't call him mammon anymore. Nevertheless, we see people who devote their entire life to that. We see people who devote their entire lives to the attainment of things like us. We see people devote their lives to all kinds of stuff other than God. Sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes it's a job. Sometimes it's immorality, as I said. But whatever form it is, what you've done is you've taken something good that God gave and you have made it something ultimate and you have bowed down and worshipped it. And there's enormous pressure in our culture to do that and to adapt and to fit in with everybody else and to make sure that you don't stick out. Paul says a couple times that these things are written for our instruction. So I've just got a couple things I want to ask here. At the end, consider your life as a whole and ask yourself this question. Do I possess spiritual life? Can I identify the point at which Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, came into my life and changed me and made me a new creation? Because simply having spiritual experiences in which you participate is not the same thing as authentically knowing Jesus. And the worst thing that could possibly happen to a person is to go through their entire life to have lived out their life thinking that, well, I'm a good person and I'm a Christian, in fact, because I, I, mean, I go to church, I read my Bible, I perform the spiritual disciplines, I pray, I give, I serve at my church, and so forth, but to have never known the Lord. 
Spiritual activity and spiritual life are not the same. One ought to flow from the other, but it's possible to do the one without having the other. We've got to be careful. We are not like some of the Israelites were. Doing all these things, but never knowing the Lord who they were supposedly following. And if you've never met Jesus, let me explain how to do that. What you need to do is admit before God that I am a sinner and I bring nothing to the table except my sin. And I recognize that God in his grace has made provision by sending Jesus to die for my sin, raise from the dead, and give me new life. And I put that and that alone, put my trust in that. And only that as my only hope of being in right relationship with God and being redeemed from my sin, from death, from hell. That's the gospel. If you've never believed that, I would invite you to do so today. That you would know for sure that today, I don't know about before, but today, put my trust in. Second, remember that God is faithful both to judge and to give mercy. Number one, and that has implications, that number one, we are not to dabble in evil thinking that God will never do anything about it. Or that there will be no consequences for our wickedness if they don't immediately fall. And I think that's the danger that a lot of us get into. We start to dabble in sin, and because God does not immediately send a lightning bolt from heaven to strike us dead, we think, well, God evidently doesn't think this is a big deal. Don't confuse mercy and grace with the unfaithfulness to judge. God does judge, even his people. Second thing, that our temptations are all ordinary, and so there's no excuse with that. When you're in sin, admit it and repent and change. Because God stands ready to help in all of our sin. And last, ask the Spirit to show you any area where you are attempting to somehow be friends with Jesus on the one hand and friends with demons on the other there is a lot of stuff in our culture where we uncritically just accept that as we just go well you know this is okay and we come up with a list of reasons why it's okay for me to see or to think about or to engage in something which God condemns does not exalt and glorify him. Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Okay? So let's not compromise our witness or our relationship with God for the sake of indulging in something which comes from, from and is inspired by what is demonic. Instead, our job is Amen? And to bring glory to him. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father.
We thank you for your great grace to us. We thank you that you are faithful, that you do love us, but that you do not leave sin undisciplined in your children. And yet you are gracious and loving and able and willing and eager to help when we are tempted. Father, help us not to make excuses for sin or to be friends with the world in the sense of trying to live the way that they do. Father, instead, help us to live upright and holy lives in the midst of a wicked and corrupt generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you are a member, stay for the meetings.